Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, and today I'm honored to have on our show a mover and shaker in the industry, an author, an educator, and a managing principal for Design Intelligence Strategic Advisors, and coming soon, a podcaster, uh, be on the lookout for Curious Teams, Barbara Bryson, welcome to the show. Thank you, BJ. It's, it's an honor to be here. I'm so excited about this conversation today. Me too. It's an honor to have you. Looking at your bio uh, and getting to know you through through uh, some research, I I'm really excited for for the many topics we can cover. But on inspiring people and places, we're always curious about how did Barbara Bryson become Barbara Bryson? You didn't start as a managing principal or an author or an educator. So talk to us about your career path, how you how you landed in the uh, architectural industry, where that passion came from, and uh, and the journey along the way. Well, BJ, I think it's pretty obvious that I'm uh, way, I have a very eclectic background. Uh, I've uh, I've been all sorts of places, done all kinds of things, and I'm way overeducated. But. Uh, <laughs> Where I started was uh, as an architect, and that is absolutely my first love. It's where I've spent most of my time and energy uh, pursuing. So I spent my first 19 years as a professional, uh, as an architect, uh, working on very large projects and ultimately leading very large projects for in large firms uh, and getting some um, great uh, team experiences and leadership experiences as a result, as unusual as that is within the architectural community. Uh, and then uh, I had an opportunity to move to the owner side, first as a university mm. architect for the University of uh, Miami, uh, and then as a, a associate vice president for facilities engineering and planning for Rice University. Uh, and during that phase of my career, which lasted another two decades, uh, I learned so much about how owners could impact the way that projects develop, the way that teams functioned within the design and construction industry. I decided to uh, write a book called The Owner's Dilemma, which uh, talks about how owners can change and impact the success of projects. That was also uh, after I got an MBA and just before I got uh, a doctorate in higher education. Since that time, I've uh, uh, really advocated for research in the design and construction industry, uh, spent some time doing strategic planning for universities here at the University of Arizona, and then moving towards the academic side because I wanted to work deeply within the university to find a way to uh, build infrastructures within uh, the design and construction industry and academia that crossed disciplines, because we are so siloed in mm. our industries 
as far as the knowledge building is concerned, that we're just not solving problems in a way that we can make them uh, be implemented. So, you know, we might have a great idea, but we're not addressing the policy issues, the social issues, the behavior issues, uh, the technical issues, and the systems issues associated with that great idea. So we built uh, here at the University of Arizona before I retired now a year ago, uh, something called Restruct, which was a fully interdisciplinary approach to built environment research, which is directed specifically to making sure that when we do solve problems, whether it be pandemic related, whether it be sustainability related, uh, whether it be project delivery related, that it really has the ability to be implemented. And so let me, uh, I, I just want to make sure yeah, I grab restruct is R E S T R U C T. Right. And you can right. at restruct.arizona.edu. You can find out the most current, uh, things that are going on in the restruct community. And is that where you spend most of your time now? No, I'm actually retired. Even from Restruct, I was able to, I, I want to spend a little time later talking about how important it is to uh, support and groom young leaders, young professionals to uh, take over from us old people. Uh, and so I'm happy to say that there has been a group of young uh, people that have taken over that job and that challenge and are, are moving it forward. That's awesome. Um, some quick background questions. Uh, you, you talked about you worked on large architectural projects, large construction projects. Client type, was it higher ed? And that, that's what led you towards higher ed? Or did you get exposed to other parts of the industry prior? No, actually, actually, it was very little higher ed at that point. Okay. It was uh, airports, hospitals, and uh, corporate communities. I worked uh, for a guy for a while called named Ross Perot doing EDS when no I way. out of Dallas. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, one of the one of the projects that I learned the most from was a USA a Cerro or a regional um, office uh, in Tampa, Florida, that was a project that I, I loved. And I got to learn all about total quality management way back in the old days. And uh, <laughs> it was my first experience with how Deming. important... Yeah, with Deming and how important it was to understand data and to develop a controlled environment that was transparent and supportive of uh, quality improvement. That's what made me desire to get an MBA. Oh, we could go so many places. I, I was a systems <laughs> engineer by undergrad, so I look at the world as systems yeah. that need to be constantly improved uh, and Kaizen. Um, yeah, Kaizen. So, uh, and, and I'll tell you what. Systems is as amazing as it is within the design and construction communities. Systems are a huge gap in understanding. We do not train our professionals to understand that everything impacts everything. No, totally, totally. The, the holistic view. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I tend to always be looking down on things and figuring out how do they how do they go to better together and integrate better. Um, so I think that so much 
in a transition from private side to, to public side or public owner side, uh, higher ed owner side, so much in that decision-making process uh, gives our audience something to learn from. So what, what was it at that time in your life that made you decide, you know what, uh, and I have, I have a uh, Ross Perot question too. I, I don't want to forget about that <laughs> because do you know the name Bud Buka? No, I don't. We can we can quickly move on. Okay, I'll I'll <laughs> highlight why I asked that. But um, in that transition from uh, you know large scale public projects, leading it on the private sector side to going to to Miami and then Rice, what what was it that made you jump? Well, I was uh, I had a six year old son. I was working an unbelievable amount of hours. I was happily, I was successful. I was vice president within the firm, Gresham Smith and Partners at that time. Now that's an AECOM uh, company now. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was doing a ton of traveling, um, some for marketing, uh, some for uh, working on projects remotely. And I just had to ask myself, is there was there another way of thinking about my career? And you know, one of the weird things that I hated as a practicing architect, I hated giving my buildings away. <laughs> I understand of, that. All kinds of weird things started happening to those buildings once I gave them away. And so the idea of being an owner uh, and understanding what happened to buildings after we opened the doors and took the pretty pictures. That was really intriguing to me. And so uh, it was complete serendipity that I I sent a resume off uh, to the University of Miami to just wonder what a project manager would make over there, that the university architect resigned the same day my resume arrived <laughs> on, on the desk of my future boss. And uh, Joe Felina, who I really loved working with um, for uh, the five years, five and a half years I worked at the University of Miami, um, you know, said, hey, she'd make a great university architect. Let's give her a call. So I heard from him the next day and uh, and suddenly I was on the owner's side. I loved it. Absolutely loved yeah. it. How cool. Everything happens for a reason, as they say. Yeah. Um, yeah it's same thing. Same thing. Same thing. I'm sorry. The same thing happened no, you're when I went to Rice. I got my MBA and I told Joe, I said, I really want to take this for a ride and find out how much the MBA is worth. So I started talking to a few people and, and somebody said, hey, you know, Rice is looking for somebody for their uh, director of project management job. And, uh, and so I sent them a, a uh, resume the same day that the recruiter had heard my name from somebody else. And so they called me uh, the next day. And again, rest, the, the rest you know, is history. <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> and that was an amazing, fun gig. We, we nearly doubled the size of the campus. We added uh, $1.4 billion worth of construction to the campus. Wow. During, in in what time tenure. period? Uh, 14 years, but uh, wow. most of that was built in a couple of uh, four-year periods. We had we built uh, about 900 million in three and a half years in wow. the middle of all that. Yeah. 
That's and that was that's that, a, that's a high that, op tempo, fun, fun environment to be in. And the students didn't kill us during that period, which was really important. And that's when I decided to write The Owner's Dilemma because we learned so much. Every single one of those projects was on time. It was, they were mission critical projects. They're on time. They're on budget. They met the scope requirements. And so we we did things like hypertrack. We did things like um, design pull schedules. We we learned how critical decision making was to the process, uh, and how to build teams in a collaborative fa- fashion. So. That's why I wrote the book. At first, I wrote the book as a manual for our team so that we wouldn't forget what we learned. Mm. And it, it kind of turned into a book. Well, it's a, it sounds like a great project. And I want to I quote the title again, The Owner's Dilemma, Driving Success and Innovation in the Design and Construction Industry. And I'm really curious about the innovation part of that because I think we, I, I sometimes ref, sometimes refer to AEC as archaic, expensive, and complicated uh, of an industry. And we're, I, I know that there's a lot of innovation going on, but the implementation of this innovation is, it, it really does come down to the owner side to buy into to taking some of those risks and doing things differently. Talk to us about the innovation side of that book. Yeah, the you you put, hit the nail on the head. The owners can be a huge barrier to innovation. Uh, we also, as professionals in our industry, can be uh, really difficult too. You know, how many times have you heard it? I've been doing this for thirty years. Yeah, that's if right. I've idea, forgotten more. I've forgotten more than you'll 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 learn. <laughs> and and you're right. Uh, we have been building one brick one stick at a time for far too long. Disruption is coming. And, uh, and those that aren't willing to embrace this disruption um, are, are going to be left behind. It's finally here. It's finally happening. Uh, and, it's, and we're going to, things are changing. But back to owners. So uh, owners get in the way of teams operating at a high level. And back in uh, 2008, 9, 10, about the time that I was uh putting together this book, they were ideas as simple as um, getting as much information on the front end as we possibly could um, based on the McLean curve curve and you know making decisions as early as possible with as much information as possible. So you know these were um, uh, super GMP, projects when we brought the subcontractors into the room day one during pre-design. We also ended up having many of the engineering drawings done as shop drawings so that we weren't uh, doing redundant efforts. We were doing hypertrack, which is designing the decision schedule and making sure that everybody knew that decisions would be made on schedule, which required decision-ready information, which required buy-in by the university. That required the university culture to change as far as making decisions. But it also required that the team act as if they're going to get decisions and have to live with those decisions moving forward. They couldn't, they couldn't rely on the typical construction and design culture uh, as far as 
oh yeah, we can redo this, we can change this decision down the line, or we can rely on change orders to correct this right. or that. No, we're, none of that. It was a completely different deal. Uh, and so it... And then we also developed what seems prosaic now because there's so much prop tech out there. We developed um, information systems, which, in fact, uh, I was told by the creator of Honest Buildings that he used the owner's dilemma as his guideline to how information should be shared on uh it's now Procore. They're part of Procore, but um, how information should be shared on in serial project environments. So what we did is made sure that information was inputted input one time by one person, and that everyone else could rely on that information, and that it was rolled up to the different levels of reporting and shared in a reliable way, even to the board level. So those are just some of the examples of innovation at that time. So I've got a hundred questions, but I, you know, we, we typically ask for a leadership or project uh, challenge that, that really highlights something. I, I have a question and maybe it's, maybe it's associated with that as well. Changing that culture of decision-making and urgency and, um, the ability to know that, hey, we're going to get buy-in, we're going to get decisions, and then we're going to have to be able to react to those decisions as opposed to, well, I get two weeks for my decisions and comments and two weeks for that and two weeks and two weeks and, you know, eventually we're three months behind schedule. How did you, how did you get people to buy into that? You know, the, the easy way to get buy-in is to get results. But before you get results, you have to get some people on board. How did you do that? Well, you're absolutely right. The easiest way to um, get buy-in is to get results. When I first got to um, Rice, they were in the middle of six major projects, and those projects had all been created with different contracts, different decision processes, different um, providers, uh, and were at different levels of failure. And so one of the things that I identified very, very quickly was that nobody but the highest level authorities were making decisions on those projects. And so the first thing that I did was to give project managers decision authority. And to do that, I gave them a simple model. I say, if you go through these seven steps and you do them that religiously, even if you screw it up, it's going to be safe. You don't have to worry. The target's on my forehead, not yours. <laughs> and can you so tell that, us what those seven? Can you tell us what those seven steps were? Sure, sure. Uh, so I call this a decision-making model. And so the very first step is to define, articulate the problem, because it's amazing how many times people disagree about what really is the problem. So define it. Second is to identify the stakeholders. Figure out. And think about it, how, who really cares about this decision? Uh, and it may be only one other person. It may be a hundred other people that matters in this decision model. Uh, identify and assess the risk of the decision. Is this decision a risky decision or is it a decision where the uh, not making the decision 
uh, offsets the actual risk. How many times have you seen a project, a major project held up over something as dumb as a paint color? You know, it's I totally it's, understand what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, yeah. So, and then the uh, fourth step is to get the information you need in order to make the decision. You're doing the research, getting the decision-ready information. Number five, determine if this is your decision or not. Mm. Sometimes there's a gray area in there, and there's solutions to that as we talk about uh, decision processes. But if it's your decision to make, then you go on to um, six and seven, which are to schedule the decision process, and number seven, make the decision. Uh, but if it's not your decision, then schedule it with somebody else, you know, find a way of getting to them. But if it's yours, make the decision and move on. Most importantly, if you're the leader, make sure they know that uh, even if they screw up the decision, if they've gone through this process, they'll be supported. If it's, if yeah, they screw it up, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out together. Right. And I think that is what, what causes a lot of projects to halt is some, there's either a culture or an environment or an owner that, that has created a fear-based decision-making problem unintentionally. You know, they're, they're either passionate about the project or emotionally vested in the result and they start getting involved in every little decision and they don't realize that they're actually causing themselves more problems on the project than than they're getting the results that they want. Exactly. Um, I, in fact, that's why I wrote Creating a Culture of Predictable Outcomes because um, I realized that we spend a lot of time talking about leadership in our industry. We spend a lot of time talking about collaboration. We spend very little time talking about decision-making. And if you don't have all three legs of that stool mm. going, your, your project is going to just die. It just is. And because you, you've been in situations where you've had strong leadership and strong collaboration, but nobody's making, it, making decisions. Everything stops. And it's horribly frustrating. You've had situations where collaboration and decision-making are going great, but you have no leadership support. Right. Everything stops, right? And you've had situations where you've got leaders and lots of decisions being made, but no collaboration and everything goes wonky. So you have to have all three legs of the stool and all supported by values, which I explain in the book, uh, which helps give the context, which makes sure that the entire team is all going in the right direction, the same direction, which supports the decision making too. Um, that that all works together. It keeps it keeps the decision making flowing. That's great. I and I'm going to highlight both books now one more time so people and we'll we'll put them in the show notes and link to it. But creating a culture of predictable outcomes how leadership collaboration and decision-making drive architecture and construction, and then the owner's dilemma driving success and innovation in the design and construction industry. Um, I, side Sidebar question, how hard were those books to write? Uh, if That's a great question. The uh, owner's dilemma was uh, a weekend project. It took a while, but it just kind of poured out it was a labor of love and it just kind of poured out. It was really 
a kind of an easy book to write. The uh, creating a culture predictable outcomes was um, it, harder, and it was harder because I wanted more people in the industry to understand that it applied to them, and I also wanted it to be more research based. Um, so I I tried to make sure that everything that I explained in the book also had research that supported it, uh, that there are other business research, other industry research that showed that, yeah, this does work. Here's, here's the information and here's the references. Uh, and so it took a while to, to make sure that that information uh, was compiled properly and uh, presented properly as far as I was concerned. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading both of them. Inspiring People and Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people and places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Jump into some rapid fire questions, and they're not that rapid, but um, <laughs> starting with starting with outside of the industry, I, I know we talked about curious teams, and I think I think that's a great title, first of all, for the podcast. Um, so why don't we talk about how did how did the idea for the podcast come about? Tell us about that. Well, it was uh, it was actually Fred Gutierrez, who is a wonderful um, large residential project manager from the Northeast, contacted me and said, uh, you know, Barbara, I think that we think a lot alike, um, but we're from two different reference points. Let's see if we can start a conversation about the kinds of things that we're both interested in and see if we can create um something that really will help the industry be a better environment for making change and creating innovation. Very cool. And when does it launch? Uh, we don't have a specific date, but we're hoping within the next three months. We already okay. have about uh, um, half a dozen uh, episodes ready to go. Oh, awesome. So we've, we, uh, want to have a few more in the can before we launch. That's great. Uh, moving on. I'm, I'm a big quote guy. I think that words, words can transform a situation and the spirit. What, uh, do you have a favorite quote and why? <laughs> it's an odd one. It's change the people or change the people by Will Lichtig. And <laughs> the reason why I like that quote is that it, demonstrates how important leadership is in the team environment. If you don't have people who are playing with the team, who are moving things along, who are making things happen in a positive way, um, then, then coach them to success or coach them out the door. And, you know, Will Lichtig, who is a, um, is a lawyer, uh, industry lawyer, by the way, he decided a long time ago he didn't want to solve problems at the end because that's not solving problems. He wanted to proactively solve pro problems. So he was one of the IPD um, innovators. Uh, he's one of the uh, folks that really work hard to develop collaborative projects on the front end of projects. So, yeah, that's I, it. I've never heard that quote, but I absolutely love it. Um, 
And, and I do think that's the leadership challenge. And the other challenge I, I struggle with is at what point when do you realize you're not changing the people, do you change the people, right? And there's, there's the leader in you always wants to see the, you know, the change, the improvement. Uh, the coach in us is always looking for somebody to get results. But, you know, the, the situation and the mission don't always allow for that, that time to remediate. Yeah, you have to, you have to be tough. You have to recognize that, uh, well, more than that, you have to care about your team enough to make a hard decision. Right. So if you have a team of 50 people and you're allowing one person to screw it up and they're not listening and they're not getting better, then make the hard decision. You've got to care about that 49 people that are, that are absolutely doing the work. Uh, must read book outside of your two. I think they're must reads now. Yeah. What, uh, I, what must I read have, book? I have one that I always, um, I have two actually. Um, one that I always talk about first, Randy Deutsch's uh, Super Users, which is about talent. In, uh, he, it, it's primarily focused on the architectural technology industry, but I think his guidelines and his um, references are about talent for the entire design and construction industry. Every aspect of, of the characteristics he defines and about the need to recruit talent and keep talent in and to uh, make sure they're curious, make sure they can communicate. These are all guidelines that we need to make sure that we are thinking about when we're hiring talent today. So that's, I think it's a great book. The other book that I highly recommend is almost anything by Amy Edmondson, who is not uh, technically a industry writer, but she has written for the industry in building the future with, um, uh, Susan Reynolds, but there's also the fearless organization, extreme teaming. These are books that can, and she does, she's with Harvard and she does the research that talk about psychological safety, that talk about what are the things that create environments where teams can succeed. Uh, I highly recommend those. Uh, because we're on the topic of innovation, is there is there anybody out there that's inspiring you or that inspires you? Or is there an innovation that you're tracking that you're like, it, disruption has arrived? Yeah, in fact, in creating a culture of predictable outcomes, I talk about um, 20 freight trains of disruption. <laughs> Uh, and so if, you, if you're thinking that you're going to be able to just keep doing things the same old way, um, forget it. <laughs> I, 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 you know, when I talk to firms about, you know, the fear, and they do, they, they're worried about some of these. And so you know, some examples, you know, are systems design. By the way, we talked about that algorithmic design, yeah. machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, integrated supply chain, which is more important than ever right now. Robotics, mini robotic construction, swarm intelligence, dynamic decision making, the trillion sensor uh, future. Those are just a few. Um, prop tech, uh, loss of licensure, the uh, super teams, um, et cetera, et cetera. When I talk about to firms about, you know, oh, God, what are we going to do? There's so many things that are coming at us. Um, I say, listen, look at what 
you're doing that aligns with some of these disruptions, just two or three, and then think about what you can do to get ready for those. Don't try to address 20 disruptions, but right. please, please get ready for at least two or three. That's what you need to do. And, uh, and within each of these disruptions, there are industry leaders that are out there and, and uh, some, some exciting work that's going on in different firms. Some of them have me excited. Some of them have me scared. <laughs> <laughs> that's appropriate. That's great. Yeah. Um, dead, or dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for the day, who would they be? What would you do? Uh, well, it, that's that's an interesting question. I, there's, and I'm going to name three people that I know very well. Well, sort of very well. One is James Timberlake, who's a good friend who I get to see next week, as a matter of fact, of uh, Karen Timberlake, who inspires me every day. And one of the reasons why his firm inspires me is because it's research-based. Yay. Uh, <laughs> and they're very creative and they're very oriented towards, um, well, they've, they're a values-based firm. They're, they're great. Um, second is a dear friend, Richard Johnson, who's director of sustainability at Rice University, who doesn't think about uh, sustainability like a religion. He thinks creatively about what is it that really is going to change behavior? What's really going to change the world? Um, he's one of the most inspiring people I know personally to talk to. Uh, and Amy Edmondson, I just love the way she thinks. And uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know I, Amy. I'm yeah, seek seek I'm, her I'm out. I'm curious I've, to read her. So yeah. Yeah, I've only gotten a chance to to um, speak to her a few times. I would love to spend a day with her. Yeah. Um, how do you want to be remembered? What's, what's your legacy? I'm not particularly worried about how I'll be remembered. What I try to do is to make sure that as I go out any door that I have set up, um, those that follow me for success. I think baby boomers are really awful about, um, worrying about how they look and how successful they've been and have spent far mm. too little time giving young professionals an opportunity, excuse me, an opportunity to um, succeed and even an opportunity to fail. I was given at 28 years old, I was handled, handed a um, $300 million project. And I am so grateful for the leaders of the firm that did that at that time because that set me on a uh, track that allowed me to pursue all kinds of fun and ideas and, you know, um, and I'll, I'll never forget that opportunity. If I hadn't been given that opportunity, I wouldn't be talking to you today probably. It's, it's interesting. You you, I have to jump in because at 28 years old, I was I was a captain in the uh, army. I came out of grad school and I showed up on a uh, 1.5 billion dollar construction program for the Corps of Engineers. So I was kind of on the owner side. Um, and how much that opportunity shaped my ability to kind of step in and learn the industry rapidly. And it, but to the point that it wasn't just me. 
there was a gentleman from Turner Construction who I continue to stay friends with. He was he was a young project manager on that, and he has had the career trajectory that you know it, it, everybody dreams of. So the unfortunate side of this is a billion dollar project doesn't happen every other day, <laughs> but those projects are out there, and and I I encourage and and I think with the Infrastructure Jobs Act, we've got a lot of big projects coming up. I encourage all young people to to go where those big projects are happening because there's going to be a mission critical path to to getting those jobs implemented and you learn a lot faster. You might make mistakes, but if you're with the right team, you're going to you're going to learn and grow in those experiences. Uh, and leaders that are responsible for those uh, take Barber's advice and and realize that those projects are the opportunity to create your legacy. Your legacy are the next project managers coming up in the organization. I think I, that's, I believe that deeply. That's such a great lesson, uh, Barbara. Uh, I think that's a pretty high note to close on, but Barbara, the time is yours. Anything else you want to, uh, to, to leave with our audience uh, before we go? Yeah, three things. Um, very briefly, first... Uh, if you're really trying to change the industry, trying to create an environment of innovation, think about culture first. Change the culture of this industry first with leadership, collaboration, decision-making supported by values before you think about process. The process is not the silver bullet. That's number one. Second, uh, support others to success. This is this is what we should be doing, especially at my age. Uh, as as we said a moment ago, um, make it possible for young professionals to uh, get as much experience and as much as many opportunities as they can, so that they can change the industry, do the things that we were not able to do. And finally, research, research, research. <laughs> we need much more knowledge building uh, in our industry. And that means being willing to get it out of our silos, to, to reach out to people in other disciplines so that when we do have a great idea, it can be implemented. Barbara, it was so nice to have this conversation. I want to hit the uh, the podcast one more time. We'll look for that probably end of summer. Curious Teams. And we will make sure we link both of your books. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your experience and wisdom with us. It, this has been great fun, and I do appreciate the opportunity very much. If you enjoy this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter if you want to learn more about the MCFA DNA. Until next time, have a great week and a great weekend.